Welcome to Alchemical Dialogues, an Amber Light podcast. Join Dr. Henry Cretella and Hafiz Lashishti for No One Gets Me, a discussion on neurodivergence and neurotypicality. The information provided on this website and these podcasts is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this website and in these podcasts is intended to be a substitute for medical, health, therapeutic, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed by the guests in these podcasts are not necessarily the opinions of Amberlight International and anyone associated with this organization. So welcome, everyone, to Alchemical Dialogues. We're going to talk today with my friend and colleague, Hafizala. Hello again. Hello again. It's been way too long. You're right. We haven't. We were talking earlier, but we talked to each other, but we haven't seen each other. So this is a transition into maybe seeing each other in person one of these years. Yeah, one of these years. Now that it's almost safe to travel. Right. It's still a pain to travel. For those of you who don't know Hafizullah, Hafizullah is a, a teacher in the Sufi lineage of Hazrat Anayah Khan. We're talking today about neurodivergence. Because he and I have decided that he's neurodivergent and I'm neurotypical. And we'll see about that. And also that we were just having a discussion before we started recording that I think this is right, Hafizullah, that in addition to a broad definition of neurodivergence that I think we'll get into, you also feel you are on the autistic spectrum. Well, yeah, for, for those who weren't with us when we started chatting like pre-podcast, pre, pre, I have or I'm living into a little broader definition of neurodivergence than simply the classical autistic spectrum disorder kind of definition. I think Henry and I agree that the DSM has outlived its usefulness, and it actually has not caught up with the latest in the research. So research into neurodivergence and autistic spectrum is, there's a tremendous amount going on in the field right now. It's like really, really blowing up. And so the researchers are coming to the point where they're actually going we don't actually know what we're looking at here. And the newer technology that we have with things like fMRIs and so forth has been, is really helpful. For those of you who might not know, functional magnetic resonance takes a real-time brain scan using blood flow to different brain regions as a proxy or as an indicator, as an index for what the different brain regions are doing, the assumption being that if there's more blood flow to a particular brain region, then that's the one that's, you know, it, it's working the hardest. And there's been really a lot of very enlightening research about this and comparing neurodivergence with neurotypicals and just what that looks like. So part of my definition of neurodivergence includes things like learning disabilities. And there's other, other spectra of neurodivergence or the autistic spectrum coming into prominence in the research. 
I'm going to put a link to a pretty decent article in the chat. And it starts off by going, autism, or whatever we're calling this, is not a spectrum. It's several different spectra. And someone can be absolutely typical along most of them and then have a, a really big deficit in one that shows up in particular kinds of quirkiness that they might have or having had to develop compensatory strategies to deal with it. And those strategies occasionally or more often just fail. And the difficult thing about researching neurodivergence with neurodivergent people is they often have, we often have difficulty in describing our experience or in describing why something went sideways because it doesn't make sense looked at from the forebrain. And so describing what happened or what we feel or why we responded in a certain way can tend to be very difficult unless the person has done a lot of work in developing self-reflection, developing self-knowledge, basically. Can you talk a little about your personal experiences from childhood on? From childhood on, from childhood through probably my mid-30s, your title for this podcast was my life. It was just my life. And it's not that I didn't have friends. It's not that I didn't know what I was feeling. As a kid, I was pretty typical what we used to call Asperger's. And yeah, describe it a little if you can. Well, I I would have trouble concentrating, except that I would drop into this silo of intense interest and focus on a particular topic. You know, it might be dinosaurs or it might be the Vikings or it might be yeah. you know, Roman military tactics or just, you know, odd stuff. And I wasn't really interested in whether anybody else was interested in this. I would simply not focus on things like schoolwork because there was this other thing that was just, that totally captured my attention. And, and I'm fairly sure that I was a little tedious to be with sometimes because, you know, drop in a nickel right. <laughs> and you know the mouth begins to go and so right. be just yeah. this this um this info dump about whatever it whatever the thing was that i was into at the time did you have mannerisms as they talk about with um i i i went through different mannerisms there was there was a time for about six months when I would say something, and then I would repeat it silently, right yeah. to the point, right to the point of my lips moving, yeah. because I just wanted to feel what saying that felt like again. Yeah. And you know, it was just sort of a tasty sensation. And I realized that I was doing that when someone actually remarked on it, and I went, "Oh, I need to like suppress that." 
Right. So there were there was a lot of as a young person, there was a lot of like cluing into things that were quirky about me and like deliberately suppressing those behaviors. You actually you worked on that even as a child. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I I mean, I knew that people looked at me kind of strangely. And I really didn't know what to do about it. Yeah. Um, you have the difficulty with eye contact that often happens? Um, I finally noticed when I was about 30 that, maybe 35, that I was just looking at people's mouths when they spoke. Wow. And I went, oh, I'm missing a whole lot here. So I would, I consciously would train myself to like step back a little bit, you know, metaphorically. Yeah. And just watch the whole person, yeah. you know, watch the whole face, take in, you know, through my peripheral vision, take in more and more. Mm -hmm. And that's how I broke through the kind of stereotypical social cue cluelessness, because it began like, like people's bodies begin to speak to me. But you were in your 30s. Yeah. Wow. Sounds like there was a lot of self-reflection going on and you were noticing things about yourself that you, I don't know if you wanted to change them, but you wanted to be able to mix better with the people you were with. What got me started in this inquiry was, this is, um, this is one of those stories about the classic spiritual bait and switch. <laughs> okay. So, so there was this young lady <laughs> and that's where it started. And she brought me into what at the time in the early 70s was called an encounter group. And it turns oh, out the, the facilitator, sure. yeah. Oh, goodness. And this, the, the facilitator turns out to have been very skilled. You were lucky. Like, I was lucky. No, he was, a, he was a professional. He was part of the counseling department at the college I was going to and had, been, had a lot of training. A lot of Gestalt training. Um, he was personal friends with Virginia Satir. You know, it just went on from there. And so I realized, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for. This is people who give me non judgmental but accurate feedback about my packaging material. Really? And so I started going to this group and then working with him privately sometimes twice a week. And it was free because he was an employee of the college. So I would just, and he started working with me on getting out of my intellect, dropping into my body, dropping into my feelings. Mm -hmm. Right. Connecting forebrain to mouth around my emotions. And a lot of what we might nowadays call cognitive behavioral therapy where he would just challenge me on different weird-ass ideas that I had, which I had because I really didn't have any friends and was not really part of conventional culture in a lot of ways. And from there, I, took, I, I had set myself up for a career in hard science. So I was thinking I would really like to be a field biologist. And I got turned on to myself, and I just took this sharp left turn, enrolled and was accepted at a hippie college, 
and spent my student loan money going to Gestalt therapy and bodywork trainings. And really? Writing, writing it up for credit. <laughs> I'm, so what? Hey, so, I'm, I'm amazed we've never had this conversation about well, it. <laughs> I, I, I knew that you made a you made a turn, but I didn't get this level of detail. So this is that is so hard. So there was something about you, even from the beginning, that was introspective, and sounds like didn't want to be isolated. Didn't want to be isolated, but didn't know how to be oh. with people in a fluid, contactful, presential kind of way. So I'm curious because the see in my psychiatric training, I was taught that many individuals on what we call now the autistic spectrum don't want to be around people, that they want to be isolated. And it, but again, that doesn't have to be everybody. But you're saying, oh, no, I wanted it. I just didn't know how. Yeah, I wanted it because I didn't really want to be isolated. Mm -hmm. um, especially as, you know, from like high school on, I was not getting laid. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you got so motivated and you were learning so much with this exposure to this psychology professional. Mm -hmm. that really made this hard turn to get into myself yeah and you went to hippie college you made a career out of this too right well back in those days you could be a, a lay therapist without any kind of like certification yeah. you could just hang yeah. out your shingle and, and do shit. and i learned enough by the time I graduated, you know, I'd, I'd taken course, I'd taken some psychotherapy courses and, you know, where we looked at different theories and theory and practice of different psychotherapies and so forth. That I basically knew what was going on in the mental health field. And I actually worked in the local mental health system for, for a couple of years mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and then took another abrupt kind of reflex angle turn. I've been, initiated into the Anayati lineage for a while. And from the get-go, I could see, even though I couldn't really articulate, how people's trauma and spiritual bypass was just running them and how much that was co-signed by the, um, the organizational ethos. No, and I'm not sure. Talk a little more about that. The spiritual bypass, as it was, as it existed at that time in the United, what was you know, the United Order of the time, was really transparently obvious to me. And I was, um, I was rather dismayed that psychotherapy was dissed and there were there were marriages falling apart right and left but no we're sufis we don't need any of the psychotherapy stuff so you were picking that up even really early on immediately really immediately for the about about 18 months or a couple of years prior to my initiation into the anayati order i had been checking out different spiritual things in the Seattle area, and it was, of course, the spiritual supermarket, and there yeah, was right. everything, you know, 
And I was, you know, I was just seeing spiritual bypass and spiritual bypass and things. All, that, in all your investigations. In all of the investigations. Yeah. I mean, even there, there was one group that laid it out in their public classes, their inquirers class, pretty explicitly. Um, we don't eat hot, you know, things like cayenne pepper because it makes you too body conscious. Yeah. And I'm going, if one thing has worked for me in my life so far, it's dropping deeply into sensate awareness. So I'm out of here. I didn't go back. So so I want to hold on for a second. Yeah. I'm really struck by this because a lot of us neurotypical types, especially mm -hmm. if you're in a a leader in a hierarchy like I was as a psychiatrist and da da da. You know, we have this stereotype. Mm -hmm. And even though we know, I hope, everybody's different, you're presenting a picture of somebody that I would say and would have said is on the autistic spectrum mm -hmm. and is amazingly self aware not just intellectually. So, you know, a lot of times people conflate autistic spectrum with intellectual disability, and that's not true. No, it's not true at all. Right, they're two separate things, but people get that confused. But even back in the days you're talking about, we probably knew that. But you're describing something what's really striking me. It isn't that you just intellectually knew. You felt it. Mm -hmm. And you could feel it and see it and knew from your perspective as somebody who's neurodivergent or autistic spectrum there's something not right here about how people are interacting mm -hmm. no i that was that was a thing for me from kindergarten on mostly it showed up to me like i have no idea what these people are doing or what they want from me right and and it was from that entry point, just leave me alone. Right. But I was also intensely curious. So when I could actually get some feedback about my packaging material or get some kind of what seemed to be an accurate reflection from another human being, I was all over it. I wanted to know. So I think that is so important for people to hear because you know the sense that individuals in your position had such a deep desire to connect and to know and that's you know it was kind of like well if you're not connecting and you're not saying that you're you know a lot of people i'm thinking of the people i've met mostly as a psychiatrist they wouldn't say that they wanted to connect and you couldn't tell if they wanted to and couldn't, or they just wanted to be left alone, or if they wanted to be left alone, is that because that's what they really wanted? Or we neurotypicals were just too freaking difficult to get along with and figure out. Well, there's, there's a couple of things, and I'm not sure. Okay, part of that view of autistics or whatever it is that we are, neurodivergence on the spectrum, 
part of that view from the neurotypical standpoint, I mean, I totally understand what you're describing because I can see that in people. They didn't know how to approach me. Right. From my part, wanting to basically be left alone is that it was actually kind of spooky to perceive that the humans around me didn't know what to do. Yeah. And the assumptions they made about who I was were not accurate. The decisions that the adults around me made for me usually did not work. I would recommend, if you're interested in a cinematic treatment of this, the film My Life as a Dog. I don't know that one. It's, I think, Swedish. And it's a chunk of a life of a, he's probably 10 or 11 or 12. It's a little hard to know. But his life is this series of misadventures where he completely miscalculates certain things in his environment. It's like inadvertently sets fire to a haystack. And the adults around him making these decisions about his life that were absolutely wrong for him. And it's, it's a very, very well done film. It's actually very touching, at least to me. I mean, it's touching because it's well made. What was the name of it again? My Life as a Dog. Life as a Dog. Thank you. And the young man portrayed in this film is... I mean, I just saw so much of myself in him. Yeah. I mean, that could have been me from like start to finish. Why did you go on a spiritual search? I had started, as I said, in like body-centric psychotherapy as my portal. And about two years into that, it finally crystallized for me that I had this absolutely oppressive, toxic, internal judge. Plus, there was just so much pain. Like, as I was trying to break out of this mm-hmm. neurotic shell that I was in, and there's a lot of trauma that goes with being neurodivergent, whether it's caused by trauma or whether it's a result of neurodivergent, you know, it's just trying to function in this i mean from from my perspective as a neurodivergent person earth is probably some other planet's insane asylum (laughs) okay i like that i can borrow that from you (laughs) please absolutely no it's it's all public domain but I, i i just realized that i was creating so much pain for myself by how i was thinking you know, and CBT probably would have been a really good thing for me at that time, had there been such a thing, maybe. And I thought, and I, I thought back to some of the Gestalt exercises and so forth. I mean, there was Fritz Perl's second book, which was just called Gestalt Therapy, had a boatload of exercises, and I'd been through some of those. And then there was a book called Awareness that also had a lot of exercises. And I'd been working through those, and I went, wait a minute. Maybe if I just keep my awareness in my body and grounded and just stop thinking, I won't be hurting myself so much. So that became my practice. 
And so I would just sit and not think and just be in my sensate awareness as much as I could when I wasn't trying to use my brain to think about stuff. And about three months after I started this, I met an American Buddhist monk in the, I think the Burmese tradition, giving a Vipassana retreat. And the things he said about awareness and the mind and so forth, I'm going, I'm there. So I did a four-day Vipassana retreat. So that's kind of what put me on the spiritual path, even though at the time I was not ready to accept his premises about the non-existence of a personal self. Mm -hmm. I didn't get that until a lot later. And so I I worked, um, I mean, Vipassana and Hatha Yoga were major practices. And slowly it began to dawn on me, this is a spiritual path. In a kind of in a kind of formal sense, even though I didn't believe yeah. in this in the spirit part, and yeah, and at a certain point I realized, okay, the DIY approach is not working for me, mm. and I really need to find a teacher. And besides, I secretly wanted to know what this God stuff was about. So it was at that point that I started checking out different groups and mm-hmm. movements in the Seattle area and. I kept hearing about Sufis and what I heard, I I really liked, Um, like no guru worship. I was a vegetarian at the time, but she didn't have to be, you know, no weird lifestyles. I didn't have to wear white in a turban, didn't have to be celibate, big plus. And so I moved out of the tenement apartment building that I was living in, paying 50 bucks a month for rent. If you can imagine what kind of place that was. You know, if I'd complained about the cockroaches, they would have charged me for multiple occupancy. (laughs) And so I moved, I took a room in a house in a really nice part of town. And I was there like three months before I found out that I was right next door to the local Sufi ashram. So I went next door to introduce myself one day and just check these people out and sat down over a cup of tea with one of the residents. And he was just a mensch, you know, grounded present mm-hmm. just no you know no sticks and so i said to him munir how did you get into this stuff and he said well i started out in gestalt and then worked in buddhism for a while <laughs> and i'm going that'll, that'll do it i i'm not too bright but i think the universe just told me something so i started going to classes there and the practices worked as advertised without weird side effects Mm-hmm. Um, so I finally decided that I was going to take initiations like, okay, this, this is good enough. It's a place to start and I'll give it three years. Mm. Logical. And to his credit, my initiator told me to wait. Mm. And he said, I can't say that I haven't been expecting this, but I want you to wait. And you really need to do the inquiry about why you want to do this. The reason is less important than the fact that you have done the inquiry. And I'm not doing my job if I don't enjoin this upon you. So that's your first practice. And I said, I've already done that inquiry. I'm ready to start. And he said, excellent. I still want you to wait. And I said, okay, I'll wait a week. You know, I could just see the eye roll. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, I'm, I'm here, it's here in the meditation hall at 6 a.m. every morning. 
if you show up in a week at 6 a.m., we'll do the initiation. And if you don't, we won't. And it's just between you and me. And um, you're always welcome here, regardless of what your decision will be. Mm -hmm. So I went and, you know, what happens when you read too many books is that I had these wild ideas about the choirs of angels that were going <laughs> to show up when, you know, when I got this initiation and the initiation ceremony itself took like 15 seconds. Right. right. And then he went back upstairs to go back to bed. <laughs> and I'm going, okay, maybe the choir of angels comes later. Mm -hmm. And so I sat down to do the practice that he gave me and I broke out into these racking songs. And I'm, there's this other part of me kind of stepping back and going, what on earth am I feeling? Because I didn't have a name for it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until much later that I realized this is home. Uh -huh. And it was a couple of years after that, that I was sitting in my little meditation space with my prayer beads in one hand and my cup of morning thunder in the other, and was almost mechanically taking off the repetitions of a mantra that he had given me. And I never know how to describe this because the language doesn't make sense unless you've had a similar experience. I never talk about this to conventional psychotherapists because they would recommend medication. My whole sense of my body, and I've been focusing on my heart and like the sensate focus was still so much of my practice. And the feeling of my body just went like, that and became totally spacious. Like there was infinities between each molecule. And suddenly I was the beingness, the practice is kind of a phone number to self-subsisting outside of time and space. And I felt for a moment that if my body had keeled over and died in that moment, that which was most essentially myself would persist mm -hmm. and the body's death would not be a big deal because what i was in or who i was my identity at that point was so immensely rich and fulfilling and just it was the completion that i had been searching for through all of this other stuff that I now understand I was never going to get to through psychotherapy because it's just the wrong tool for that. So that's what actually put me on the path. Right. That was really a rebirth. As a neurodivergent person, what do you think helped the connection with that initiator? Um, I trusted him enough. I'd gotten to know him fairly well. I take it he was probably neurotypical. I would. <laughs> okay. For, for the for the purpose of the conversation, I would say yes. <laughs> so he was more on the neurotypical side than the neurodivergent side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, okay. There was a. But what helped was some degree of trust. 
Well, it was clear to me that his intention was really clean. I mean, I, I could also see his neurotic avoidance and the bypass, but that didn't matter. You know, he had that something around like, you or in general? Well, just in, just in his life, yeah. Just in his life, okay. Yeah, and I mean, this that was so typical of how we did spirituality in those days. That was just how it was done. So you know, it was not exceptional. Um, but, but I trusted him. I trusted, more than that, I trusted the practice. Hmm. And I think it really helped that the community was very accepting of me and my strangeness because we were all really kind of strange in the late 1970s, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so you, you think the strangeness of the, the 1970s, and this was not a mainstream path in America. No. You think that helped back in those days for them to accept you and you to accept them? I hate to divide it up into you and them, but. Um, yeah, I think, I think the ethos of the time with this acceptance of whoever you needed to be to actualize yourself, which might be pretty unusual, but, you know, you do you. So that, that could have really, that, well, could have. It sounds like to me that that really helped you. It really helped me. So yeah. that, it was a great holding environment where people could be accepted for who they were without a lot of judgment, mm -hmm. even though there was all this bypassing going on. Yeah. They just didn't bypass that one. They yeah, they didn't, they didn't bypass. There was actually some community in the community. Yeah, yeah. So even with all its foibles, that part was really important to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you stayed on the, the Sufi path because you also got involved with the Mevlevi organization as well. So you were in two different organizations for a while. I, I, I was in two different orders for a while. And the way that came about was at Sufi camp, Pirvilayat, Pirvilayat and that Khan, who I know believe was really my teacher i mean i'm sure my initiator would have said i'm not your teacher i'm just a stand-in for pure Valiat. and of course pure Valiat would have said no nah, i'm just a stand-in for promotion and i khan and so forth there was the thursday evening sama where he introduced whirling wow. and i had a you know i had pretty good body awareness and pretty good you know balance and so, you know, I got out there and I staggered around with my arms out the way everybody else was, and I didn't bump into anything. And he came up to me and he said, you do that very well. You should go study with the Mevlevis. Oh, good for him. And so there's a whole other, like, story behind that, not the least of which was some pushback. So my initiator had left town to go found a spiritual community in the Southwest and the people that took over, I was simply not getting along with, oh my God, oil and water. Hmm. And I was getting a lot of pushback from them for um, hanging with the Mevlevis, but that was largely because under their leadership, the local community had completely collapsed and dissipated. Hmm. And it was also 
the time when Pervalite finally put his foot down around drug use. Mm -hmm. So there was like mass exodus from the local group at that point. And I finally got official, like I'd written Pervalite a question that like one of the next camps should, you know, is it okay for us to do zither with other orders or, or study in another order for mm -hmm. certain things? And he said, by all means, this is traditional. If you feel moved, this, you know, the Sufi order is not a jail, his exact words. So yeah, so I was involved with the Mevlevis, which eventually led to being initiated as a sheikh and giving, been given permission to teach the turn and the Mevlevi Samah. And you were still involved with the other order too? Well, I was still involved with the other order. And at a certain point, about seven years into teaching on behalf of both, that I realized that I had to make a choice that I couldn't go any deeper in either one of them until I made that choice. It's like, it just became transparently clear to me. You know, there wasn't any human agency leaning on me. It's just, okay, I need to do this one thing as deeply as I can go with it. So and, did you still feel pretty accepted with your neurodivergency back then? Mm, not, eh. um, no, because some of my behavior was just, you know, I, up into my, I would say up to age 40, there were just some things about myself that were mysteries to me and that were tremendously irritating to other people. Mm. So living, by that time, I, I was living in kind of a, a group house sort of situation. So it was a bunch of Sufis. We rented a big barn of a house and you know, did meals together and practice and so forth. And I didn't know how to live with people. And that was very painful. I've been very self-contained because I think largely because of my neurodivergence up until, um, you know, actually trying to live with people. Living in my family was not good training for living with human beings. <laughs> it, just, it just wasn't. You know, I mean, I look back and I realize it finally crystallized for me when my father was like 90 years old. Oh, my God, he's autistic. And he's never done a lick of work on himself. Uh -huh. And that could be me. That could have been me. But for the grace of God, there go I. Right. And um, alive pretty much just from the eyes up. Yeah. You know, his, his body was just the shell carrying his intellect from place to place. I mean, he was an engineer, which was a perfect, yeah. um, perfect pro profession for him, but, but all the engineerness went with it. So before we get further along, because, uh, you know, we may have to continue this at another time, too. We still have a half hour or so left. Mm -hmm. I want to see if anybody has any questions so far or comments that they'd like to ask or share. Um, I would like to. I would like to say in that regard, nothing is off the table. I will not take offense at anything, and I will try to answer you as clearly and concisely as I can. So there's a question: What helps or helps to stop thinking to calm the mind? And you mentioned the term packaging material. What do you mean by that? And which okay. practices were helpful? What was helpful? Can you recommend any anyone? Ah. Uh recommend a book? 
I do not recommend books for trying to get out of your mind. Right. Okay. Because <laughs> um, you mentioned Fritz Perls. I would actually say if you can find a copy on Amazon, the book Awareness by John O. Stevens would be a much better, better place to start per like gestalt therapy kinds of, of exercises. More than that, though, what worked for me was just being intensely, like obsessively focused, which as only an autistic person can do. <laughs> on body awareness so we can talk about mindfulness in that regard but approach mindfulness through sensate awareness make that the context for everything you do in the day so when you get up from your chair after this podcast is done Feel every muscle fiber that is activated by, first of all, your intention to move, and then the actual sensate, just drop into it. It's delicious. Bodies are delicious. And they get even more delicious when the effect of spiritual practice is embodied. Good point. And, and just stay aware of every movement, every eye blink, every breath, every swallow, the feeling of your body on the bottoms of your feet as gravity is pulling you towards the center of the earth, and just track that every moment. And that becomes a meditation all by itself. You don't have to do anything else. You know, all this, you know, falutin, crown chakra nonsense will just open up by itself if you do just that much. There was a comment from Bob. I'm getting the impression that it was a gift that you dropped deeply into your body before you struck out on the spiritual search. Yes, unquestionably. I think that's really important. Yeah, it's really important. That was my portal, and it's still a major tool in my toolbox. And I could talk about my training and somatic experiencing at some point and how that is just like more, a deeper, more articulated, much, much more nuanced, same thing that I've been talking about. So I want to fast forward a little bit. So when I met you, uh, how old? Boy. It was in the 19, it was in the early, early 2000s. Okay. Um, I, I was, I was in my early fifties at that point. Okay. So your early fifties, I met you at a Sufi gathering and that was part of the order we were both part of. And, um, I told you we would talk about this and you said it was okay. Yeah, so that's the, fine. the first time I met you, we didn't have very many words at all. And I wrote you off. I didn't want anything mm-hmm. to do with you. Yeah. And Kathleen, my love, knew you better and a little bit longer and said to me, you know, you should give this guy a chance. There's something about him. Some words. Uh, she clearly said, you have to give him a chance. And I actually listened to her. Right. And, and all the women who are listening to this right now are going, 
yeah, guys, you really need to pay better attention to your wives. <laughs> right. And they should do that. But what strikes me is I literally had in my mind, I said, I don't want anything to do with this guy. And the reason was you came off as condescending and you had your nose in the air, almost literally. And you said, I probably did back in those days, but I remember you with your head back, your deep voice pontificating about something and walking off. And it was like, that, that would be me. Yeah, that would be <laughs> so you, were, you were in your 40s. So I listened to Kathleen. And, you know, a little bit over time, something changed. And I and I when I look back on it, it's like, okay, I was a psychiatrist, it didn't go through my mind, consciously, this person is on the autistic spectrum. And I, I very, I really tried not to do that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it happens, but that didn't happen. I just thought you were a condescending asshole. I can say all these. Yeah. So I, I gave you a chance from a distance and I just watched you. Yep. And to me, you were quirky. You were hard to get to know. Mm -hmm. I still wasn't sure I wanted to get to know you. And then I started to catch on how intelligent you were and how passionate you were. Mm -hmm. And I started to reframe some of your, what I was thinking of as your attitude, as real passion. When you love something, you love something, and you want to share it. You didn't exactly share it in a way that made it inviting for me <laughs> in those days. But there was something about, I caught on, wait a minute, there's, okay. And then... And again, I, I don't want to get super personal. You made this move from the Northwest, which I knew you were in love with. And I think you had a job on computers. Mm -hmm. you, you had a steady job, a place to live. And then you made a move to the East Coast because of love. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, what's he doing? He's a, is he going to be able to do this? And you went back to the Northwest with no job. Had to find a place to live. No job, no money. Yeah, no job, no money, no place to live. And I, I, I had literally spent everything I had to rent the truck to get me across the country. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't even know that. I remember, I don't know where this came from. We were in Texas, and you were coming. I don't know if you remember this. You, you were, we passed in the outside somewhere, and I just looked at you. I stopped you and said, I just want you to know that I can really, I really feel what a chance you took out of love moving to the East Coast. And I just have so much respect. I don't know if I said that, but something like I connected with you. I felt a connection. Mm -hmm. You remember this? Yeah, I remember that. I, I mean, we looked in each other's eyes. I felt feeling from you. I felt that you heard me and you took it sincerely. I wasn't trying to brown nose you. So I had learned on the spiritual path. So this is, you know, you and I think I'm neurotypical. I was so freaking shy as a kid. It was unbelievable. And I did have a group of friends, but I, and I was shy as a young adult. I did some pretty weird shy things as a young adult. And I was at a Sufi meeting. We were working 
on some project. And this man comes up to me and he says, I like you and I want to be your friend. And I said, okay. And to myself, I said, I never would have done that. I would have been way too afraid mm -hmm. to say something like that. And I said to myself, well, if I can accept that and it made a difference and we were friends and it was sincere, maybe I should do that with other people. Mm -hmm. So I took a chance with you because I, yeah. really, I really felt it in the moment. And I'm really grateful. And I think something, for me, something changed with that. And then it's like we've kept, you know, we don't live in the same place. And then, um, you know, we would consult with each other. You would call me, hey, I want to run something by you. I would call you. We would check. And then I just, so you were in your 50s then. You're in your 60s now, right? I'm, I'm 72. Oh, congratulations. I'm 73. Somewhere in your 60s, I saw you getting into more and more quote, trouble, end quote, organizationally speaking. Because mm -hmm. you would periodically call me up and say, hey, what do you think about this? You know, and occasionally you would say something to me and I would say to you, and this is the kind of relationship we have, I can say to you, now you've never done this with me, but I've done it with you. And I've said, Hafizala, you can't say that to me. What are you what are you doing? And you would say, What? What did I say? And mm -hmm. I'd say, da 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 da. And this is what it feels like. And you said, Really? I didn't mean that at all. And you would apologize and mm -hmm. it would be sincere. And you would tell me what you really meant in different words. And I remember telling you when when I saw some of the other trouble you were getting in, I would say, Hafizullah, you have to learn how to lie better. What are you doing? You're, you're in, in groups. You're so freaking honest. It's like, just like shut your mouth or tell a white lie. You know, it's like you're so introspective and you're so out there about this is what I believe and this is who I am. And then people start slamming you. So anyways, that's a lot of talk on my part to say something clicked with me and you. Mm -hmm. Me, it was Kathleen saying, no, 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 stop and give this guy a chance. And then we had that interchange where I really felt feeling for you because I, I couldn't believe the chance you took because I'm not sure I would have taken that chance. And then we're at this stage where we talk to each other and I see you trying to maneuver your way through. And I think it's the social stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Let me let me pause, put a parenthesis around this, or actually we're going to pull some stuff in from an earlier part of this conversation. And so in my family of origin, abbreviated foo, <laughs> um, the indirection was crazy making. Uh, yeah. Nobody was saying what they really felt or what they really thought until the pressure built up and they would explode. Yeah. And the way that I dealt with that was that I stayed at the level of, of at the surface level of, of the, you know, of the explicit communication. But you said, 
Right. So fast forward to my experience in the encounter group and this therapist and teaching me basic communication skills, Hmm. basic listening, basic deep listening, don't interpret, and everybody say what they mean and mean what they say. And I don't know if you've really hung out with, also it was the time, like there was, there was just a, a thing at the time, Gestalt people were really direct. And I'm going, this works for me. No underlying messages, no implication, none of this stuff that I, right. I literally cannot process. Yeah, it's all that neurotypical stuff. All that neurotypical stuff. <laughs> and so one of the reasons that neurodivergent people tend to either hang with each other or be alone is that the indirection and the the polite noises, the meaningless polite noises mm-hmm. made by neurotypicals in social situations, it's boring. <laughs> it's superficial, it's meaningless, and there is simply no contactfulness in that. So, and this is something since our last conversation, yours and mine, about my directness. This is something that I've been looking at. Mm -hmm. And I kind of make the assumption that people actually want accurate information about things. Ooh. Yeah. No, no. (laughs) And that has been... That's one of the stories of my life. No, people don't want good information about things. They want, they want their packaging material supported. It's like nobody really wants to change. They just want to become slicker neurotics. And you actually tell people that. And I tell people that. Because <laughs> I had to know. I mean, I was like three months or four months into this encounter group thing, I was getting feedback that was devastating because any time I would like do what I would have done in my family with one of the group members, the leader would say, stop right there and begin to disassemble it for me. And I'm going, oh my God, mostly because I realized that this was like totally not acceptable for one thing, but also I just wanted to actually have human relationships. And a lot of this was really painful. And I would go into shutdown. Because I, in the encounter group phase. In the encounter group, yeah. Because I simply couldn't process I simply couldn't process it. So I was walking across the plaza of the college. And I'm going, this hurts worse than anything I could have possibly imagined. Now, do I keep going with this? Or do I continue on with a career in science and remain this kind of quirky ass neurotic and probably get divorced a couple of times by the time I'm 40? And... I could almost point out the two paces where I go, I 
have to know the truth. I don't care how much it hurts. So, so I'm really bad at navigating organizational structures. Yeah, yeah. And you've been burned. Yeah, I've been burned. Been badly burned. What helped you survive? Um, in in terms of somatic experiencing and that framework. So in SE speak, I am very, very resilient. <laughs> Part of that is that, you know, I, I do understand. I just get, okay, it's, this is my life. I will be misunderstood. I will be taken as arrogant when I'm really just being straightforward. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like people will assume that directness is, is a threat. Right. Like it is against my principles to try to score a point by being insulting or, you know, to get one up on somebody or to retaliate, you know, all of that stuff. I learned really early that's dirty fighting and don't do it. And I really understand the, the human integrity piece of this and how sacred that is. So it's literally against my principles to do that with somebody. Mm-hmm. I don't care what they've delivered. That's irrelevant. Yeah. That's on them. But I think the assumption in neurotypical society is that if someone is direct, it's an attack. Yeah. Well, I would have said too direct, but that's the judgment call. The other part is, since we share the same path and we were part of the same organization, although we're both independent now, there's this, I don't know the right word, I don't know if it's a spiritual bypass. There's this, um, I really can't find the right word. The emphasis is on gentleness and I don't think it's in your body at all. And it's gentleness and meekness and so... I see somebody like you and maybe even me who have a direct, you know, a desire mm-hmm. to be more direct without being cruel. Yeah. And it's just, it's not meek enough, you know, and it, it's, so is that, but I, you and I share some of that. I think, mm-hmm. it, I don't know if that's, is that, so if you look at it from, okay, is that part of the neurodivergence autistic spectrum that you don't, this is a neuro, neurotypical speak now, okay? Mm-hmm. You don't get the social cues. Or is it more like, oh no, the, the social cues are fake. You shouldn't get them. Well, it's both. Uh-huh. For, for me, it's both. You know, I can, I can navigate that world now in a way that I couldn't probably, well, I couldn't when you met me. Uh-huh. Right. My ability to track, to sync with somebody else's improved like dramatically, and even in just the last 10 years. For the last 10 years, you got in a lot of trouble in the organization. That's true. So you're tracking better, but somehow, you know. Well, I, I think the trouble that I got in with the organization goes farther back than that. Oh, okay. And 
I mean, I've been, I've been an organizational gadfly <laughs> um, in that organization and in others. Mm-hmm. Um, specific you know, well, well, be, because I'm passionate about the things that I'm involved in and I want to see authenticity, especially on the spiritual path. Like, what else are we doing here? You know, some of that was Privilei's influence, even though he had this this um, very refined persona with, you know, its level of nonsense. Underneath of that was a passion for authenticity that he transmitted to me, which there was already plenty of, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that was a plant in me that he watered and fertilized really well. Yeah. You know, that was the part of me that said, I have to know the truth. I don't care what it costs me. Right. Because without that, what's my life worth? Yeah. So we're, we're going to have to unfortunately stop in a little bit. Are you willing to come back and talk some more? Yeah, I'd love to. Maybe in April? Mm-hmm. Well, I, 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 I'd be happy to. I love hearing myself talk. <laughs> so... We had a podcast months ago on the Montessori intervention program, and you might want to go back and listen to that because Mm. I'm not sure how much we got into it. I'm speaking to anybody who's listening to this. It's the one with my friend John Earhart, who hopefully we're going to do a podcast with next month. I'll tell you about it in a second. So he developed this program that was using Montessori principles but not in a Montessori classroom. And he mm. was paired up with a Montessori educator. And it did wind up being in special special education, but not, not Montessori. And it almost by accident, what developed was this wonderful program that got an award in New York State mm. for people on the autistic spectrum. Mm-hmm. I believe it was middle school. And he would tell some really heartwarming stories. The one I'm remembering is a mother coming up and crying to him and saying, I want to thank you because this is the first time ever my child wants to go to school. Mm. Joy's coming to school. Mm. And so the going thing in mental health, treating behaviors, maladaptive behaviors with children with autism is basically you shape them out of it with hardcore behavior therapy, which is not what my friend does. And I don't like that either. And I said, so what do you do? And he said, we accept them. Mm -hmm. They don't tolerate destructive behavior. And there are some kids who can't control their behavior, but they don't try to shape the quirkiness out of them. They accept it, they allow the kid to enjoy it and to use it, and they find some way of helping it be adaptive. Mm-hmm. The kids are like, oh, you know, and then, you know, the, the question is, well, do they succeed in school? You know, and well, you know, what I can tell you is it got an award from New York State. The kids go to school and they do learn. He said what he found is, unlike I think your story, but Maybe not, because we didn't talk a lot about your really early childhood. He said, oh, they're making changes, but it is so small and it's so gradual. You really have to stick with them. 
I take from that that he developed a loving holding environment that respected kids mm -hmm. and who they were. And a safe environment. Yeah. Kathleen had an experience one at a camp where she was filling in and helping out, but she had some, I think there was a child she was watching who was getting into trouble because he had these compulsive behaviors. Mm -hmm. Everybody was trying to get the child to stop it. And she was kind of paired up with him and she didn't try to stop him. And I remember her story. She's not here to tell the story, but you know, the, the, the kid said something like, aren't you going to try to get me to stop this? And she said, no, it's camp. If this is what you love to do, do it. Because it wasn't hurting anybody. And it was like, really? I can do this as much as I want? And all of a sudden, everything changed. And mm -hmm. the kid mm -hmm. had fun and wasn't a pain in the neck anymore. Yeah. So, so, so I think a lot of what I'm taking from this is the misinterpretation that I'm going to stereotype this neurotypicals have. It's not that people on the autistic spectrum don't want to interact. It's that they don't know how to read us. We don't know how to read them. Yeah. When you get in a relationship like you and I have, or you have an initiator like you had, or somebody like Piravalaya, or you get in a group that is safe and mm -hmm. accepting, and maybe you can say things like, Hafizala, you can't say that to me. It hurts too much. And you can say, oh, well, okay. You know, but, you know, people won't let you say that to them. I hope I can let you say that to me if that arises. But I've had other people who just won't give you the time of day when you say, no, you can't mm -hmm. do that. And it's like, how dare you say that to me? I'm paraphrasing. So, yeah, I, I'm getting a lot out of this in terms of we need to be more accepting of each other, each other's quirkiness. So you think I'm neurotypical. I used to ride horses and play polo, believe it or not. It was backyard mm -hmm. kind of. And I was out of, I was with my coach who ran a farm and raised horses. And a guy who had, we were playing on his field and he was, running tractors and fixing tractors. This is so out of my league, right? What I didn't know is that he knew I was a psychiatrist. So we did, we exercised the horses, we sat down and we were talking. They were talking about tractors and fixing tractors and I don't know what they, I, that's not my language. I was in my shy phase, right? And I was in my thirties. So I didn't think anything of it. And it's like, well, you know, I have nothing. I don't know how to talk about this. Years later, I can't remember how I found out, it might have been the coach who said to me, you know, this guy thinks you're condescending. And I said, why? He said, because remember that time? And I remembered we were sitting around this table. He said, he figured you weren't talking because you were a psychiatrist and you, you thought you were better than us. And my jaw dropped. I said, I wasn't talking because I don't know what you're talking about. What do I know, tractors? And it's like, wow. So I took it as, I wish he had been more accepting. Mm -hmm. I should have been less shy and tried to say something or get the conversation turned a little bit to something I could talk about, like horses. 
I could talk about horses, you know. So I, I think this idea of like, we all have quirks, you know, whether, you know, I'm neurotypical. Mm -hmm. I was so shy, I was condescending. And trust me, <laughs> I don't believe I was condescending. I was scared. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to talk to these people. And I wanted to, because I wanted to play polo and ride horses. And this is the only group I could do it with, you know? Yeah. So, there was... There was a time in our species history when conformity was survival. Yeah, right. That's and that, that's deeply imprinted in our primate brains. But it's also, a, a, there, there's a whole other layer of, of this, of conformity, obsession in this culture. Yes. That other cultures don't have. Mm. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. And my hope has been and still is that spiritual groups, especially the non-dogmatic ones, are more accepting because that's their whole, that's one of their purposes. Mm -hmm. That we're all on this road in our own unique way to get somewhere. So, Well, about half of my my circle here in Seattle are gender nonconforming in some way, sometimes several ways, depending on the day. And there's probably a third of them are also neurodivergent in some way. Right. So, and most of them are young people. So there's a question. Do you think the 20% hypersensitives are evolutionary forces? I like that. I, that's a great question. And I think yes, because, you know, we have needed those people with hyper-tuned mm -hmm. sensory antennae. And we also need them in organizations because they'll see stuff, potential danger points coming up a lot sooner. Right. But they have to be listened to, appreciated. Not lockstep. I mean, I can argue with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had something just to show you we could really have a disagreement. Not quite. You said something about somebody I knew and their behavior. And I wrote back to you and say, stop making excuses. That was just plain wrong. That shouldn't have happened. And you wrote back and said, you know, you're right. Mm -hmm. I almost fainted. But anyways, it was just a point that you know, we can have a conversation. And, and you were seeing things one way. And I was saying, I, I, no, I don't, I don't think the way you're seeing it is a useful way. And I know you, you thought about it. You could at least hear me. Mm -hmm. And I also know if you didn't agree with me, you would have said, no, I don't think that's it. Because we have that kind of relationship. So I know we're going to have to stop. Elaine had to leave, but she wrote this, this wonderful note. Thank you. I didn't know there was a, I didn't know there was a name for me. So much of your story. <laughs> So much of your story is mine, though my natural gateway was emotional awareness. I'm only now opening up to the vast realm of the body. So your comments are truly helpful to me, and I appreciate your candor and honesty. Honesty is not something you have to worry about with Afizal. So she's looking forward to part two, as am I. Uh, thank you, dear friend. Uh, thank you. Mm. So I'll get in touch with you in maybe April or May or something. We can have part two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also on my alleged mind to do another 
another pass on spiritual bypass. Yeah, sure. Because with this with this training I'm in, uh, in somatic experiencing, I'm seeing bypass in a different way that actually is, I think, helpful. Good. Um, oh, one yeah. more comment. I think I, I told yeah. you, but I want to tell the group, whoever is listening, PBS has a, a series called Astrid. So mm-hmm. have you watched it, Bob? Yeah, so it is everything we're talking about. So it is a series, and you can stream it, and there are two seasons. I think that's right. And it's a story about an, an autistic adult whose father really helped and protected her and got her a particular job. But she's really good at puzzles, and she's in a police library and has a photographic memory, and you can see, you know, she becomes a great help to the detective and all of that. It made me howl with laughter. The best part is they have snippets of a group of people on the autistic spectrum, a self-help group, and they talk about exactly what you were talking about. How do you deal with these neurotypicals? And the one I'm remembering that made me just roar was, they never say what they really mean. They ask you a question and you give them an answer and it's not, they get mad at you. Why can't they just tell me what they want? And it was just, it, it, it just reminded me of exactly what you're talking about. And it really, I thought it was a really well done series and I hope they have a season three. So you should be able to get it on, on PBS. Thank you and we'll talk again. All right, be very well. Stay safe. You too. Bye to everyone. Bye-bye. If you find yourself enjoying our podcasts, please do us a favor and spread the word. Tell a friend about it. Give us a review on iTunes or post it on social media. If you or someone you know would like to participate in a future podcast, please connect with us through the Contact Us page. See our events calendar page for dates to our next live podcast recordings. We'd love for you to participate and ask questions. And be sure to check out Joel Lessie's podcast, Unraveling Religion, on your favorite podcast app. Alchemical Dialogues are live and unscripted conversations recorded on Zoom, brought to you by the great folks of Amber Light International, a nonprofit organization co-founded by Henry Cortella, MD, and Kathleen Fitzpatrick, LCSW. We choose topics from our current social and cultural climate with an emphasis on humanism and spirituality.